everyone, Marie here. This week on Zero from the Box, we are talking with Sarah Gottfried, author of the memoir Full, a memoir of overcoming an eating disorder. Prior to recording this episode, I had the opportunity to read Sarah's memoir, which depicts Sarah's tenacity in her battle to overcome an eating disorder. She talks about how the eating disorder took a toll not only on her mental health, but her physical health, her relationships with family and friends, and ultimately prevented her from living her life to the fullest. She talks about the ways in which the medical model can be a disservice to those struggling with anorexia, and she emphasizes how you can be the key to your own recovery. If you're interested in reading Sarah's memoir after hearing our conversation with her, I highly uh, recommend you to do so, but I also just wanted to make you aware of a few trigger warnings. Firstly, I want to provide a trigger warning for the use of numbers throughout the book, including mention of Sarah's weight and height calories and serving sizes. I also wanted to provide a trigger warning for the language used to describe Sarah's weight loss and body size when she was in the depths of her eating disorder and a discussion of foods that she ate at this time. And lastly, I just wanted to provide a general contact content warning for suicidal ideation. Sarah has chosen to share her story to encourage others to find the joys of recovery. Um, I think you'll really see that in the in this episode as well as in her memoir if you do choose to read it. Um, so without further ado, this is a great episode, so let's jump right in. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. My welcome name is Gianna. Back. And I'm Marie. And this is Serial from the Box. A podcast where we are 20-somethings talking about eating disorder recovery. And today we have a very special guest, Sarah Gottfried. Woohoo! Hello. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. I was really looking forward to this. Yeah. So for those of you who do not know, Sarah is an author. She has published a memoir. It's called Full, a memoir of overcoming an eating disorder. She is also an eating disorder recovery advocate and a social worker like myself. So we love social workers here. Um, Is there anything else you want to share about yourself, Sarah? No, I think you kind of summed me up in a nutshell. Good. Okay. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to have you here and to talk about, you know, your eating disorder um, story and more so, you know, where your recovery path has taken you and what you've learned through that process. Um, So I was thinking just to kind of get started, do you want to give us some background about, you know, kind of where your eating disorder story kind of begins? Um, And then we can kind of jump into maybe some other questions. Mm -hmm. Like kind of going back to when it all started. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Tell us about your relationship with food as a kid, like whatever kind of kicked it off for you. Yeah, I think it sort of now as I look back on it, um, it's become a lot clearer, I think, of how it started. And I think it started earlier on than maybe I suspected it to. But in general, I think my relationship around food really varied as a child. Um, My mom and my grandmother were very very, um, weight focused or maybe just like focused on like physical appearance. And so Mm -hmm. I sort of just grew up with lots of comments around that and how big certain portions were or if certain clothes looked good or not. Um, And so as a kid, I think I internalized it a lot more than I thought. And so I remember times when I was in elementary school, even just kind of looking around at other kids and my friends and wondering, 
like kind of just sizing them up compared to me. And so it was always in my head, but I never acted on it um, in a way where I was as a young child, where I was over-exercising or not eating or anything like that. It was still in my head, but I, I just didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in high school, I had um, joined the track team essentially just to get out of gym. Cause then if you got credits for doing track, you didn't have to do gym. And I did not yes. want to do gym. Nice. So, nice. so I had debated during my sophomore year, I had done it freshman year, but I didn't love it. I did it for the social aspect and that was like it. And so my mom had joined a gym that just opened up in the next town over. I remember going home from school one day and just like blurting out, like, I think I'm going to like join the gym. And, you know, I don't know if I want to do track, but I think I'm going to join. And I remember my mom, like, I remember it so vividly because my mom was in the kitchen cooking and she just kind of turned around and was like, oh, well, you could use this like app that I'm using. And, you know, it might help no. you. <laughs> I know right. where this is going. <laughs> right. yes. so, now I come to find out when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh, I know about that app. And I'm like, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it just started where I was like, yeah, I'm going to lose weight. And I think I, you know, from some of the people that I've talked to, it seems like there is this similarity where it's like, okay, I can lose a few pounds. And then it quickly spirals um, because you just, it, yeah, it just happens so fast. And the mentality is like, what's a few more? Um, right. And then it's never good enough. Right. If, you know, so that's sort of how it started. Um, but yeah, I would say I grew up around a family that was very like weight centric and very focused on numbers and physical appearance. Um, so it was hard to not internalize that. Yeah, definitely. And I think we can say a similar thing for our experiences yeah. too is yeah. that like diet culture kind of showing up in those different ways yeah. earlier on so that once you know like around I think for us it was high school too when we're like okay let's go on a diet and then having that quickly spiral and no one kind of really like batting an eye at it because it is just so normalized do you feel right. like do you feel like your the whole like family aspect of it is like a cultural aspect or just mostly like a your family thing so I think I'm Jewish so I think I've tried and even like as a social worker like I'm, I like you know I like the, the the science behind things so I think I did at one point think like is this cultural um and there were some things I found that yes it is kind of common in the Jewish culture maybe maybe not but I it felt very like family oriented for me. Um, yeah, it felt just more like in my family. Okay, cool. I was just curious because I'm also like really interested in like, yeah, this, like, the, the socio whatever stuff. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a, a social scientist like you guys. But, um... <laughs> Sometimes Jenna puts her scientist hat on. I love it. I love those it. questions. <laughs> you know. You know. So. Um, when I got a chance to read your memoir, I know you kind of really talked about all those like nitty gritty details in terms of like how the eating disorder really just kind of completely took over your life and took away your mental health, your physical health, your relationships with people. Um, and it also seems like the recovery process for you, at least, especially early on was quite like a turbulent one, something that you kind of just like stumbled into 
Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of that process and, and where your recovery has gone since then? Yeah, I think to something I didn't mention that sort of reminds me of that the year before I sort of like started dieting, I had gone to my doctor, a pediatrician at the time. And she had told me the weight I was at was a good weight to stay at. So when I went back to my, I went to my pediatrician essentially because I had lost my period and I had told my mom and my mom was like, Oh, like we need to go to the doctor. Like what's going on. So, you know, it's, I, the pediatrician had just sort of gave me a list, my mom, a list of like therapists and nutritionists and was sort of like, here, go call all these people and see who has like the shortest wait list, who takes your insurance and like, just go see them. Um, and so, you know, my mom did that and she was very worried and concerned, um, and my doctor never explicitly said I had an eating disorder or anything at that appointment. She kind of just like insinuated it, right? Um, of, of like, you know, you've lost weight. That's why you don't have your period. You need to, you know, figure this out. And so we, you know, found someone very quickly. Um, and I think the problem was that, and I think I say this in my book too, and I know I tell people this as like cliche as it is, it's like, until you like admit that it's a problem, it's not really a problem. And so mm -hmm. when I was, you know, going to the doctor every week and, you know, having the same test done and, and seeing this nutritionist, I just, I wasn't ready to make that change yet. And I didn't see that it was a problem. Um, and so in some ways, I think I liked like knowing that people cared about me and like, were worried um, because I'm an only child, but I think I just felt very lonely. And so it was nice to like, feel like people like were thinking about you in, right. a, in a weird way. Um, it, but yeah, so I had gone to this new, this dietitian and um, her background was it sort of varied. Um, but she had essentially in my book, I show it this meal plan that it just didn't work for me, it was, I'm very type A and mm -hmm. like anxious and organized. And so I like to follow things to a T. And so I followed this plan to a T and I was just still cutting things out and just so afraid of things. It, it's, right. it's separated foods. And so that I think only fueled my anxiety around food. We had a debate about that a few weeks or yep. episodes ago at this point, but like, yeah, where it's like, meal plan good meal plan bad like, <laughs> yeah we were talking about um different kinds because I know like through my treatment I've mm -hmm. gone through different kinds of meal plans and like ultimately we've both ended up in a space where we can you know rely on intuitive eating um which has been great but I think it's so hard because like on one hand um especially when weight restoration is like kind of a part of the recovery process like mm -hmm. you need that structure and especially like accountability against the eating disorder that wants to keep cutting things out. But then at the right. same time, it's a really like hard process and you can fall into that perfectionism with yeah. that too. And also, can I just say, when I was looking at the meal plan um, that you detailed in your book, like it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough food at all. <laughs> um, and I yeah. just like, don't think that helped the process either. No, nope. yeah. because 
Yeah. I still had this mentality of that. I wanted to still lose. And so Mm -hmm. I was eating even less than that. And so it is interesting to look back and be like, yeah, that probably wasn't enough just in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think you spoke on this like a little bit earlier and it was kind of one of the questions that I had lined up to ask you. Um, but kind of admitting to yourself that you had a problem and kind of that, it sounds like kind of being like the flip switching in terms of your recovery and actually, you know, pursuing recovery with full force. Um, so can you tell me like a little bit about what that process like looked like for you and when exactly you started to like no longer recover for other people and more so just for yourself? Yeah. So I, I, feel like I had to like have two points in my recovery. And so the first one, I, at one point I had reached a place where I was like, I'm not seeing any providers. Like I just had felt that they had failed me. I couldn't trust them. And I think that was probably at my very sickest and lowest too. So mentally I just wasn't even available, but I had in my mind that when I turned 18, I was going to change and I was going to like take it into my own hands. Um, I just felt like there would, there would be some sort of freedom. And so I had found a nutritionist um, who, you know, I talk about in my book and she, she just met me where I was at. She didn't treat me like a patient or somebody in the hospital. She didn't see me as this really sick person. She just saw me as me. And so I felt that I could trust her and we had a good working relationship, but things didn't change. If anything, I probably just stabilized a little bit. Um, But then the point where I like really feel like my recovery, um, you know, started was when I went to college initially in California. Um, I thought that if I just sort of like traveled across the world, I'm in Massachusetts that I could not the world, like across the country, like I could just like fly away from my disorder and just like be free. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that day was almost like the worst and the best day of my life, I think. Um, because the day I moved in, I actually moved out that very next day. Um, I just couldn't do it. I, I had had a panic attack and I just had reached my breaking point. I remember my parents were at the hotel and I was texting them um, because they hadn't left yet to return. And I was just like, I can't do this. And I remember going back and forth with my mom, like, no, Sarah, you can do this. Like, take a breath. It's just, you know, normal nerves, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, like, I can't do this. Um, And I remember texting her, like, if you don't take me, like, I'm going to kill myself. And I think there was a part of me that really did believe that, like I would try and hurt myself. And then I think there was a part of me was just trying to like, really tell my, like show my mom, like how much I couldn't do this. And so we, you know, flew back home the next day and I, you know, my parents were pretty like sort of disengaged a little bit. And we're like, you need to figure this out. Like, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? Um, And so I remember like, you know, I took a few months off of school. I, you know, found like a part-time job and I went back to Julie and was like, you know, I don't like, I need help. And, you know, I went into it full force and really listened to everything that she said (laughs) um, and everything she sort of advised me and suggested to eat. And I just did it. Um, And so I think, you know, looking back, it was kind of went into it with blinders. 
Um, because I was so focused on just like getting my physical health back. I wasn't so focused on like my mental or emotional, um, and sort of like the fear of eating foods that I was so fearful of. And so I think over the last few years, that work has really like been in full force, um, to try and heal, you know, my whole self. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like so proud of past you (laughs) for like that moment. Yeah. When you really like said to your parents, like, no, I need to leave. Cause I know for me, mm-hmm. leaving school was like the hardest thing to do. Like I, I felt like I would do anything but that if I had the choice to. Yeah. So to be like, really like kind of advocate for yourself in that moment and like make sure that you are heard, like, wow, kudos to you, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and school was like what had distracted me throughout my last few years of high school too. So it was, right. I think that with yeah, to my parents was like, okay, like something's wrong. If she, that was like my motivation. It kept me busy. It distracted me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for me, it was like the opposite. Like school was like the instigator for me. Yeah. Okay. So that like I was like glad, like. Luckily, my parents were like, okay, when I like left school, I was like, yeah. they're like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And I was <laughs> like, <"Ooh." laughs> yeah, I mean, it worked out kind of in the end, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, and then you just mentioned kind of like in the, in the more recent years, kind of mm-hmm. working on that, like holistic, trying to heal everything. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. what that process has looked like for you? Yeah. So when, you know, a few, maybe like five or six years ago, I had, when I was sick, I had found a yoga studio that I had really enjoyed. Um, and so I had gone back to that yoga studio when I moved back in with my parents and, they had a kids yoga training and I took that training and I really, I love kids. Like I work with kids as a social worker. I, you know, so I felt really motivated by that. Like in order to do that, I need to like, not only like physically be well, but like mentally and emotionally be well, because kids are so intuitive and they just pick up on things. Um, and so that was really you know, monumental, I think for my own inner work, especially I did classes for teens and I had done some like, um, like not like just donation yoga classes at a local organization, um, you know, for girls who are maybe who have a trauma background or come from low income families. And I just remember just being with them and hearing some of their stories and thinking, wow, like I, like they were really inspiring and motivating to me to like be a better person overall and like feel good about myself. And so I think that sort of started my inner work. I think going to grad school was another big change. It's when I sort of like officially moved out of my parents' house and, you know, moved into the city and had my own apartment. And I just started to be around people who had very, what I thought neutral relationships with food. And it was, that was really motivating to me just to be able to see people just really eat intuitively. Like when they're hungry, they're hungry. If they're not hungry, maybe they are still eating because like the chocolate in front of them looks really good, whatever it is. And so that, that really like opened my eyes. And that was sort of another pivotal point, I think in my recovery that sort of, that has continued to today, Um, just being around people other than my family 
um, and seeing their relationships with food. Yeah. I know that Gianna's talked a lot about that in the past and how like being around her boyfriend, like in particular, like, um, like how his kind of eating patterns had then, you know, influenced her. He's just her. so good at eating. He's so good <laughs> at it. Oh my God. If you could get a grade at eating, <laughs> A plus. If you get a 110%. He is a dumpster. Like, I love him. I he'll, love- he'll eat anything. Uh-huh. Oh, what a good boy. What a good I can boy. totally but, um, relate. Yeah, my boyfriend, same way. Same way. Yeah, I don't yeah. know where he puts it. But... <laughs> No. Yeah, but I think that's um, helpful because I know, um, I don't know if maybe this was like true for you as well, but like, so my, my parents have been on and off dieters, like, yep. you know, their whole life. So mm-hmm. I remember like when I was trying to recover and then they're doing Weight Watchers and I'm like, ah, I'm going dead. insane. Is that something yes. that you kind of also experienced? For sure. So wow. yeah, my mom had always off and on dieted and, you know, any sort of like, yeah, fad diet that was out there. She tried. Um, whereas my dad, he exercised, but he really exercised like truly for the mental component. Um, and it was never in your face. It was just like, I'm going to the gym. That's it. And I'll like, it was just never, it was just very different. I think they both have very different relationships with food. And because I was with my mom, a lot of the time, my dad traveled for work. Mm-hmm. I only really saw that one relationship with food a lot of the time. Right. Right. So I imagine like, obviously that makes it so much more difficult right. too. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to go back to your like, yeah. oh, sorry, Marie. No, you're sorry. good. I kind of want to go to the, like the kids and the yoga stuff. Like, yep. so how do you feel like, how do you feel like you were able to like kind of either they influenced you on your relationship with food or. Like, or did you feel like you had to be an influence to them? Like, what are you feeling? Because I teach a lot as well. So I kind of am interested. Yeah. So a little of both. Um, I realized how like prevalent sort of distorted body image is image was and is in that sort of world in the female world. And so they would, we would just talk about different things. They bring things up throughout the class and they'd make comments sometimes about their weight or other people's weight. And I'd be like, in my head, like, wow. Like I remember thinking that stuff, but not saying it out loud. And like, here they are thinking it and saying it. And like, that's a problem. Like as a 12 year old, like any, I mean, any age, but that young. And I just remember thinking like, that is crazy. And and it made me sad. That was really the emotion it made me feel was just sad. So I remember thinking like, one, I need to be like truthful as I'm like standing up and teaching this class and not, you know, be telling them, oh, don't say that. Like, I also need to be like taking my own advice and like practicing what I preach. And I felt like for a period of time, I wasn't doing that. And so I was like, like, sorry, you got to like get your act together a little bit here and like do some of this work because then it just doesn't feel authentic. And I don't, I want them to feel like they can trust me. Did that come before you started your recovery process or was that kind of in the middle of it or like, yeah. So I had moved back from call, like from California had started with Julie, like that physical recovery. And then a year after that I had started. Got it. it, it. So it was sort of a year after. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 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 
And I'm also wondering how you've gone about challenging some of your perfectionism during your recovery mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, they're part of my just personality and they're just who I am. Some sure. of them. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's a work in progress every day. And I feel like I, I want to be, you know, truthful with people even to today and that it's still a work in progress. I think I'm even like food and body image aside, I am kind of perfectionistic. I like things done a certain way. Um, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I feel you know, that. Going back I to feel st- that. <laughs> going back to sort of like the boyfriend piece, I think until I found Mike, I never realized like how influential he, he is in my life. And um, he's able to sort of like stop me in my thought tracks and be like, hold on, like, don't say that because you actually know that's not true. Um, he's like, I feel like he's like my, you know, shrink that I can just like leave right in my wallet. Right. <laughs> in your uh, pocket. Yeah, exactly. Literally. I was um, like, yeah, dying. He's like, you're not dying. I have yes. COVID. You don't have COVID. I'm going <laughs> to, my ankle's broken. Your ankle's not broken like every other day. Yeah. And yes. And so he's been great. And so he's able to sort of like put things in perspective for me. But I think for me, it's, I do enjoy, like I have a good relationship with going to the gym, you know, in my life at this point in my life. So it is like doing different self-care things when I feel myself like falling into that trap of different, like perfectionistic tendencies, um, whether I'm stressing about work or maybe I am having like negative thoughts about myself, just doing something that makes me feel good. I'm a big like reality TV person. So sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I need two hours Weird. of just, like trash TV. And um, what's your favorite? I'm a big housewives person. Very interesting. Okay. I've gotten hooked on like most of the like dating reality TV oh, shows. Yeah. So mm-hmm. That's my personal stick. Oh yeah. Those are ones are crazy too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I, I have like gone on and off with journaling and I, I can't get into it. I just, I can't. Yeah. I, much. Yeah. I go to every store, like I'll buy whatever, like the, you know, whatever's pretty. <laughs> right, right. And I'm like, it feels like a chore and I, I feel awkward doing it. So it just doesn't feel authentic to me. Right. Um, And I think that's like important when it comes to using coping skills is like, there's never going to be a one size fits all like what works for one person isn't always going to work for the other. What works for one situation isn't always going to work for the other. So I think it's like important that at the end of the day, you're doing what brings you the most joy, what helps you the most, instead of trying to be like journalism, journalism, oh my goodness, (laughs) journaling, (laughs) you know, is the only right way to cope with emotions and release big feelings or, you know. Yeah. And I, I see a therapist, like I'm pretty open about that. So it's, you know, it's just another thing. Yeah. To help. So like, what made you want to be a social worker? Mm. So it's funny because in high school, my freshman year, I actually wanted to, I was very interested in like science and anatomy and I had wanted to be a dietitian. Um, and so Sure. During my, yeah, I know. I know. The irony. <laughs> yeah. And so I, when I had, you know, was, you know, in high school when I was really, you know, sick and not well, and my experiences with dietitians, it just, 
I didn't like it anymore. And I also felt like I just, I just couldn't do it. I was, you know, I was just like, I can't do this. I was thinking about like all the classes I'd have to take and how focused they'd be on nutrition and food. And like, I was like, that is not the path for me. Um, and I know there are dietitians out there who are recovered and, you know, are great practitioners. And I just couldn't do that. I wouldn't, you know, so I wanted so I always loved working with children and family. So I wanted something in that realm. I didn't want to go into education. Um, and then I thought, what about like therapy? I had had a therapist when I was in high school. And although I didn't really talk to her about the nitty gritty details and things, I just sort of used it as like a check off the box because the doctors are telling me to go to therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> she bet me where I was at. Like she didn't push. She didn't ask me questions that she knew I didn't want to be asked. Like she truly met me where I was at. And so I was like, I want to do this. Like I want to help people not necessarily work like specifically with like an eating disorder population, but I want to just help people. So I went to, you know, undergrad, loved the classes, loved my internship. And I was like, I need to go to graduate school and like continue. Um, so it sort of just like evolved from becoming a dietitian to becoming a social worker. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting. Um, the life career paths that people end up choosing mm-hmm. when they have an eating disorder. Jana, I think you're just, you know, an exception, but I feel like most people <laughs> <laughs> end up being like, oh, I want to be a therapist or specifically some people, you know, specifically want to help other people with eating disorders. Yep. I'm mm-hmm. also kind of the same way where it's like, I don't think I could really do that. Like yeah. for my own kind of sanity and mental health. Exactly. But- yep just like the idea of helping other people in general or using like our own experiences in order to be that much better of a, you know, therapist or whatever it might be for somebody else who's going through not necessarily the same experiences, but like similar kinds of feelings and and whatnot. Yep, exactly. I feel like though, in my defense, in your defense, um, I feel like I'm meeting a lot of people that are like, struggling and I feel like through my presence no but like (laughs) by like being a rational voice in someone's ear it's like you're still doing you're like doing doing the work you know what I mean by that it's like yeah yeah it's like a positive like representation in in a field that that is notoriously uh shamey right yeah because yeah. I mean at the end of the day fat phobia is like gonna perpetuate mm-hmm. every facet of our society so at the end of the day to not have not even like you know like uh, the fat external fat phobia, just people just mm. in everyday life talking about how they feel about things right um on the other hand though I did have to tell somebody that a banana is not a protein source and neither is bread <laughs> This is well, a grown man who is 22 years old. I guess oh you can be a, a pseudo nutritionist. Yeah, exactly. So you know, what? I'm I'm doing all the jobs. Um, That's hysterical. Like, <laughs> They're like, yeah, I have to build some muscle. Like, better eat more McDonald's. And I was like, what about the McDonald's is helping you build? He's like, it's protein. He's like, the bread, the bread is protein. I, was like, I love how he chooses the bread and not even the meat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about how about nuts? I was like. I mean, we're getting closer. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I apologize oh, for discrediting you and uh, the work that you are doing. It's clearly you, ever you, so important. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> educating the population here. That's hysterical. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see what else. What other snazzy questions did I have for you? Okay. Oh, motivation. This is you know, a big thing for a lot of people at Waxes and Wayne. So I was wondering, how did you work on building motivation and belief in yourself, um, especially when it feels like everyone else has given up on you? Yeah, so I think when I had moved back or, like, you know, had come back from California, it, it my parents had disengaged. And so it did feel like, like, for lack of better words, like, holy shit, like, how am I going to do this? And so Julie, you know, was like my cheerleader and she was great. And she, you know, of course motivated me. I think what motivated me in general though, was I wanted to go to school. Like I had all these dreams and like goals and I was like, how am I going to do it? Like I have to be at a place where I can do it. And I'm the type, like if I have the goal and it's like on a checklist, like I need to check that off. And it was like, how am I ever going to check this goal off if I'm like going in the opposite direction? So I think just life in general, like as cliche as that sound, it motivated me. I wanted to be a social worker. I wanted to move out of my parents' house. I wanted to be like being in a relationship with somebody motivated me. Meeting friends. I had lost like all of my friends friends. And, and that was just really sad. And I, I wanted friends. I was social before, like I wanted to be in a place where I could like go out and enjoy. I think the spontaneity around food, like seeing other people around me, um, especially when I went to undergrad, like just go to the, the college cafeteria and like just order whatever they want. Like that, that motivated me. Like I, like Sarah, I want to do that. Um, so it was sort of like those little things that sort of was like pushing me a little bit along, you know? Yeah. And as you were talking, I don't know if this is like a dumb thought, but I was kind of thinking about, there's a certain point in your eating disorder where like the only goals that you have are around losing weight or like are somehow tied to your eating disorder, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like as soon as you can kind of start seeing things outside of the eating disorder and like pursuing things that are more authentically you and not having your identity so wrapped up in just the eating disorder. I feel like, yeah, that definitely helps build a lot of motivation to work towards those things. Totally agree. Like that's why I had no friends in undergrad because I was like, I can't be that bad that no one wants to be friends with me. But then like reflectively, I'm like, I had no interests and like, I was not fun. (laughs) like you know like I'm like now like I'm in classes I'm like wow I have friends like that's so cool I guess like these people are just nicer no you just have a bigger brain now like (laughs) more brain space yeah I actually um a while ago when I was still working with a therapist I had one session I don't know I've talked about this on here before but I had one session we were doing um like EMDR Mm -hmm. and um I had a session where I was thinking a lot about during the EMDR portion about like my freshman year of college. Cause that was right before I ended up in treatment. 
And after the end of the session, I kind of just came to this conclusion of like, I was so hungry (laughs) that whole time. And just like all the things that felt like they kind of went wrong and how my relationships were falling apart and how Mm -hmm. school was taken away from me because I need to go to treatment and stuff like that. It's like, I just felt so bad for the girl that was just so incredibly hungry. Like she didn't have any other thoughts going on in her brain other than that. So I can totally relate, like feeling like there's just a collage of like food, just like in my brain, all these foods that I like wanted to have foods. I didn't want it. Like just, yeah, food. Right. That's like the only thought. For me, I remember like, so the way that our schedule was set up um, was like, there was like a morning class. Like I, I, I was a dance major in college morning class, there's lunch and then afternoon class. And then like you were either free or you'd have rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And like, I was like, would be in class just thinking, okay, it's almost time for lunch. Yes. Okay. It's almost time for lunch. And like, that was my whole life. Just like waiting for lunch. Right. Or like waiting for the next class so that I could go home and eat whatever, you know, like just thinking about what I was going to eat. Like, oh, I have this for lunch today. You know, that was the whole thing. Ah, yes. Ah, and now, yeah. like in my classes now, I'm like, oh, it's over. Oh, it's it's oh, is now when I have to. Oh, I have to eat now. Like, oh, you know, it's I mean, it's like not on my mind all the time. Exactly. Yep. I think part of moving away from like my perfectionistic tendencies, like part of that was like moving away from times. And I remember like always going to bed hungry, mm-hmm. and it was like, okay, at like seven o'clock, I can eat breakfast. And then like, okay, at 12, I can eat lunch. Yeah. And then like, okay, I can have a snack. And like, and so it was like moving away from that because it was so ingrained in my mind. Like, sorry, you can only eat lunch at noon. Like you could eat lunch at 10, like, like I remember like being in classes and like, I was like, well, you had to eat at this time because like you're in class for three hours and the teacher's like, no, you can't eat. And I'm like, oh God, like <laughs> it, just, it just sort of, you know, yeah, forced me to move away from that a little bit. Right. And I, I know probably most of the people that listen to this podcast are people that, you know, are going through this themselves or in the recovery process. But for anyone who does, <laughs> this is their first time hearing about an eating disorder. I feel like that's one thing people don't realize is like the way that food rules aren't always just about like the kinds of food someone eats or doesn't eat, but like can show up in all these different facets that maybe other people wouldn't think about so much. Yeah. I remember like being so afraid of putting lotion on or chaps, like just like, and looking back, like being like, Sarah, like what? Um, now I think I own like every bath and body work like, <laughs> and lotion or something lined up on, you know, my nice. desk. Yeah. Um, and so just like, like just, yeah, things like that, that people don't realize are sort of part of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, um, I have a question. I have a go question. Gianna. So what is this? Okay. I don't know how, is it swag or S-W-A-G? Oh, <laughs> this is what happens when I share my questions with you. Oh, <laughs> I got you. Okay. Have you ever heard of the swag stereotype? It's skinny, white, affluent girl. No, I saw it in That's a research article once. Yeah, so we've talked about it before. I think when we were talking about I was like, small, white, American girl doll? (laughs) (laughs) No. 
No, it stands for some, I don't know, some research, I guess, decided to coin the term, but kind of referring to like the general stereotype of people who struggle with eating disorders, mainly restrictive eating disorders, being the skinny, white, affluent girl. And then you, you know, could tack on teen there as well, you know? Yeah. Um, I've never heard of that. Yes. You can proceed with the the question now, Gianna, now that we've clarified the definition. So- Okay. Thank you. Um, (laughs) do you feel like, so you have written this wonderful book. Um, Mm -hmm. how do you feel like maybe someone that doesn't fit into that kind of stereotype or like is in starting their eating disorder in a larger body or like, or is a person of color, how could they relate to your story? And like, what do you feel like is like the takeaways that people could find? Yeah, I think that, you know, coming from different backgrounds and things like that, that maybe you can find some sort of similarity in the family dynamics, the piece around like losing friends or feeling like you just don't have the energy to do anything. Maybe they too felt like moving away or school or something was like the motivation or like the, the ticket out of the sickness. Um, or in general too, just like knowing that they're is sort of this like continuum of recovery, I think is like something that I really want people to understand and feel like they can relate to as well. I think when I was, you know, starting off a few years ago too, and even just like being on social media, it feels like you're either like on this end and then like, you're either like really sick and then, or you're either like recovered and there's like no in between. And it's like, there's this whole continuum and you can go forward and back. Like, and so I want people to understand that, like, no matter what body you're in or who you are or what you are, that, you know, you can be on your own path of recovery. And that's really just unique to you. I love that. Yeah. I think that's great. And I totally agree that like the continuum of recovery is something that can be so difficult to talk about Mm -hmm. on social media too, in particular. Um, because you kind of find yourself in this like teetering place of like, if I'm not fully recovered, am I someone that can, you know, fully be an eating disorder recovery advocate? Like, you know, like if I'm still trying to figure my shit out, can I lead everybody else? Exactly. (laughs) It's like hard to say, because like on one hand, that doesn't, um, take away from the value of your experiences, um, But on the other hand, you know, when you're still struggling, there's always, you know, the possibility to be triggering to other people in the community, especially with the level of competition that like kind of comes with eating disorders, which is, you know, something we don't always have to deal with when (laughs) talking about other mental health issues. I think, yeah, to sort of jump off of that point too, I think I've had cleaned out my social media a while back after sort of like talking with my therapist and just seeing a lot of like before and after photos specifically related to like eating disorders, all types of eating disorders. And, Mm -hmm. and, and it did feel like this competition mentality, just even sort of like reading through the comments and things. So it is, it is a really interesting world. Like, I feel like I'm learning so much as I go too, just about eating disorders in general. Yeah, definitely. And I know for me in particular, learning about eating disorders that I haven't necessarily experienced, like um, yes. ARFID in particular, I feel like it's one that always comes up for me because um, mm-hmm. there's so much to learn about ARFID and there's such incredible diversity within the people that are diagnosed with ARFID. Yep. Um, 
So if you have ARFID and want to come on our podcast and talk about ARFID, we would love that. <laughs> yeah. I had, um, yeah, I had seen something on social media the other day, actually, and it was basically mm. it ranked eating disorders like um, in level of severity. And I I'm had, so mad. Uh, <laughs> I had clicked it. And then, but it was raising awareness towards saying it was, so the post was basically mm. rated them. But then if you read the description, it was saying, this is what people rate them as in severity and trying to really ex- like, you know, explain that there isn't a level of severity. They all are equally severe. Right. And it was, mm-hmm. it was interesting because, you know, I think people do hear a lot about like anorexia and bulimia. And then the other ones are just like over there. Right. And they're just as, you know, important and severe and, you know, worthy of attention and research and science and things like that. But it was really interesting. Definitely. Yeah, I feel like we talked about that also recently, Marie, that mm-hmm. like, like about like, if something seems to be more um, instantaneously dangerous yes, versus mm-hmm. like something that over time could cause a lot of like mental, physical damage, but also just like, I feel like people don't realize how <laughs> how dangerous our can be. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it's so dangerous. Yeah. I, I just like remembered an article I read yeah. um, a few years ago that like, you know, like someone that like, it wasn't a, like a male, first of all, it was a male that had an extreme fear of eating foods that like a certain category of foods. And they yeah. were so limited that like, they basically ate like fries and they had unfortunately passed away. And it's yeah. like, that's like so scary. And like, people don't hear those stories. Like, Oh, they're just picky. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. be careful. Right. Yep. Sorry about that tangent, but I do have a question, Sarah. Like mm-hmm. my big question for you is like, what, like on, when I first saw your email and stuff, I was like, wow, like cool. And I was like, why, like, why did you want to write a book? And like, what felt like a like fulfilling about writing your book? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I had, I had some like various journal entries that I had written when I was, you know, in high school and throughout, you know, my recovery. And I thought, I just, I remember reading through them and feeling really alone and just confused about myself and just eating disorders in general and feeling really frustrated and mad Um, and a lot, a lot of blame. Um, and so I had thought like, I want to write something and I want to be able to write about my story and I want to be able to share it. And I think initially I thought like, oh, I'll just like start a blog or something and just blog. And then I was like, no, I don't really want to do that. And I'm sort of like a go big or go home mentality. And I was like, nope, like I'm going to write a book how I'm going to write a book, no idea. Like where I'm going to get the money to write a book, no idea, but I'm going to write a book. And so I remember like writing, like sitting at Starbucks, actually, I remember the day and just like sitting there for like a few hours and just writing on a Word document. And it looked like just some long, like lengthy journal, like with tons of typos and like jumping from thought to thought. And I had been part of this Facebook group. And I just put in there, like, is anyone here an editor? Like, I really want to write a book. Like, I want to talk to somebody. And I had talked to her and she, you know, kind of helped me organize my thoughts and 
you know, we had this plan, like, yeah, I'll write it in a year and like, see what happens. And then I was in undergrad and like, like I had, couldn't focus on solely writing a book. And then, so I, you know, was writing for like four years and then COVID happened. And I was like, no, I, you know, the world is crazy right now. I I just don't want to write a book. And then in the last year is when I really finished it. And what had motivated me, I was actually on my second date with my boyfriend. And he was like, you know, like, what is like a goal you have in life? And I remember being like, oh God, like this is like a loaded question. And I said, I think I just kind of want to write a book. And he's like, well, you should do it. And I like a few days later, I was like, well, you know how you asked me that question? Well, like I actually am writing a book. And he's like, wow. And he's like, well, how far are you? Like, what are you going to do? And I kind of told him and was really like nonchalant about it. And he's like, no, like, sorry, you, you need to write this. Like, this is an important story to share. And it doesn't matter if you sell one or a thousand copies, like this is for you. And I had really, I had slept on it a few nights and I was like, no, like Mike's right. Like this is for me. And I was sort of like looking back on the past few years and rereading what I had written. And I was like, it was very therapeutic, the process in and of itself. I had gone from really feeling like I had blamed my mom and my parents and different providers. And then being like, you know what? Like I was in a really different headspace, and, you know, maybe I do have some blame towards people, but like, I I've come like, you know, I'm working through recovery and I found myself on a different side of it. And I feel like, no, like this has been therapeutic and I want to share my story and, and like raise awareness around it and just, you know, share. So that's sort of like (laughs) the lengthier version. That's great. Did you like develop kind of additional insights like throughout the process Mm -hmm. of doing it then? Yeah. I, it's funny because as I was reading through like my first initial draft and then my final draft, and even my editor had said this to me was like, your tone has really changed. Mm. And in my first rough draft, my tone was, it was, it was a little bit like argumentative, you know, blaming, there was like a lot more anger in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, there were certain places that I wanted to sort of keep that tone a little bit. Cause I still felt similarly in that final draft. And then there were places like, no, like I'm actually in a different place right now. And I don't feel the same way. Um, so it, it did change. Yeah. Cause I think when I was reading through it, that's one of the parts, um, that I really liked was having kind of those threads of like current mm-hmm. Sarah's awareness, yep. you know, kind of just shine through. And so you kind of see how you felt in the moment, which I feel like would, you know, resonate with so many people, but then also kind of have that reflective self coming in and kind of providing that additional context, as well as like kind of a glimmer of hope towards the, towards the future and towards recovery. Yes, exactly. Yep. That's awesome. Um, I think I have a couple more questions if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that um, you talked about in the memoir, which we were kind of touching on earlier, mm-hmm. uh, was how you kind of stumbled your way <laughs> into treatment initially. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was just wondering, like, from your opinion and your experiences, how can like clinicians or dietitians or just other eating disorder professionals best support people when they're in that stage of their recovery where they're not really quite ready to leave their eating disorder behind, but yet they're like, you know, still here and still, you know, kind of taking those first steps. 
I think, you know, I think the biggest thing too, that I've learned just in my profession is, you know, like I keep saying is really meeting people where they're at. Yep. I think a balance of, you know, motivating and, you know, pushing and, and taking on that like professional sort of like authoritarian role of like, mm-hmm. you know, you need to do this. You should do this. It's important to do this. Well, also sort of, you know, weighing the pros and cons, something that I had, you know, worked on a lot with my therapist and, you know, and Julie, like, what are the pros and cons of like staying where you're at and then yeah. not staying where you're at? And like what, and most often it, you know, not staying where you're at outweighs staying where you're at. Right. And so I think, you know, coming through like with an empathetic and compassionate approach and not judging and treating people that are struggling with disorder eating and eating disorders, like as people and not as patients. I think Mm -hmm. I felt like I was treated like a patient and a science experiment. And, you know, I had talked about this in my book, being asked to do multiple, be part of multiple research studies after I would had come out from the hospital. And like, I'm, I was like, I am a person at the end of the day. I don't like want to be poked and prodded and, you know, be part of some research paper. Like I want help. So I think just really treating people as, as people, yeah, as people and knowing that deep down we do want to get better. Yeah. And I, I don't know if we've talked about it on here before, but I know I've talked about it, um, with Lucy, who we've had on this podcast before about Mm -hmm. like the harm of like labeling people as like non-compliant or treatment resistant and things like that. And I think that kind of falls into what you're saying about seeing people more as their eating disorder than as them as an actual person. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, And I'm wondering too, in in the process of writing your memoir and where you are at now, have you been able to kind of work on like healing your relationship with your parents? Yeah. So we are, we are at a very different place than we were. Um, And it's, as I physically and mentally got better, or I should say, as I physically got better mentally, I, you know, slowly, but surely got better as well. Mm -hmm. Um, which was eye-opening and interesting for me throughout that process to like, because for so long I had a lot of blame and anger and I was like, oh, like, was I the problem? And like, no one was the problem. Like I, you know, no one is to blame or anything like that. Um, but yeah, we have like slowly, but surely worked our way through, um, to have like just a really good and open relationship. I think it's still hard at times. Yeah. Um, and it was hard, um, because, you know, maybe my mom wasn't ready to do some of like the work that I wanted her to be able to do with me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, had realized like, can't change people. Sorry. Moms gotta, are never ready. Moms yep, are you never gotta, ready. Yep. You gotta meet them where they're at. So I remember having like some anger around that. Like if I'm going through like hell and high water right now, and I'm like dealing with all of this, like, just like, will you just, come with me to a therapy session or like, I don't know, just like talk for an hour with me. And so it, that took me time to just like come to terms with. Um, and so I think being able to accept my parents for who they are flaws and all has been really instrumental. Yeah. Um, Really instrumental. 
definitely. I'm really glad to hear that because I was reading the letters um, that yeah. your mom wrote you and the memoir. Yeah. And that definitely struck a chord for me because I my my mom, when I was in treatment initially, wrote an angry letter towards me. So I was like, well, I guess it was like towards okay. the eating disorder. Okay. But <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so that just kind of like hit like a little close to home firstly. So I'm yeah. really glad that you've been able to to work on mm-hmm. that. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, I think last question, and hopefully, mm-hmm. unless you have other questions, Shiana, because I think, we'll see. I, sure, <laughs> okay, I think mine can end us on a good note, but, okay, um, what has life been like since you fully dedicated yourself to recovery, mm-hmm. and what does having a full life mean to you? Yeah, my question is also included in there, it's, um, how did you meet uh, Mike? I oh, like I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good ending questions. Um, so for me, life is really, it feels really happy. Um, I feel like I wake up and I'm just like, you know, work is work. And there are definitely days I'd love to call in sick, but like, I'm excited and passionate about life and doing things. I look forward to traveling and trying new restaurants and cooking new recipes and hanging out with friends and, you know, feeling okay with like, yeah, we're probably going to like order out or go out for dinner and like, it's okay. I don't know where we're going or what I'm going to eat. Um, like things like that. And just honestly being able to go to the gym and like feel okay after leaving or waking up and being like, screw it. I don't want to go to the gym this morning and feeling okay about it all day, not thinking about it all day. Definitely. And so it, it just, yeah, it feels just happy and, and just true to what I feel like I can listen to my voice and the thoughts in my head and be like, you know what, I'm going to honor what I'm feeling right now. There are definitely days and times when I'm like, you know, may feel like I'm, you know, having negative thoughts or some days might feel harder than others. Um, if there's, you know, a time where I'm going away on vacation, mm-hmm. um, you know, like in, I had gone to, um, Mike's family for Christmas. It was like my first Christmas I ever celebrated, which was very exciting. <laughs> um, and so, and it was like a week away and I was like, like I haven't done this in a while. And I was like, there was, I was definitely like a little nervous. Like it was out of my comfort zone, Mm -hmm. you know, just in and of itself, like being at someone else's house and sleeping there, but then also like, okay, it's the holidays. And like, people talk about food around the holidays and, you know, you, there's going to be sweets and there's going to be all different foods and things. And I remember like being a little nervous, like definitely nervous about it beforehand and during it. And then when I had come back, I had realized like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But there were definitely moments where I had eaten different things and I've been like, oh, I don't know if I should have had that. And like having to sort of like bounce, like, you know, talk back to some of those thoughts. Yeah. I think that's sort of where Mike comes in. So I met Mike online um, and it was funny. Our first date um, was in the city and he was like 40 minutes late. And I remember texting him and being like, do you want to like reschedule? Like, no, no, I don't want to reschedule. Like, I'm just trying to find parking. Oh my like, goodness. Okay. Like what's going on. And now like come to find out Mike is like very good with money. He's very like money cautious. And so he was, you know, he, he didn't want to pay for the garage parking. So that's like beside the point, um, <laughs> but we had met and we had just like hit it off. I think like a few hours had gone by. Cause we just met for coffee 
And a few hours had gone by and we're like, oh, like we actually like got to go. Like we've got other stuff to do today. And so we had, you know, had a few dates and how did it, I think when we were talking about the book, it came up, he's like, well, what would your book be about or something? I think, oh, he'll kill me if I say this, if I get this story wrong. Um, We can amend it. (laughs) And so I don't, it just, it came out. And I remember him being like, wow, like, that's like so amazing that you're like where you are today. And he said it so like confidently and Mm -hmm. like compassionately. And I was like, I've in my head, I'm like, I've never met a man like you who's ever just like <laughs> said something so kind and like honest. Right. And it, you know, we're we're moving in in June. And so we're looking at places. A keeper. So I love it. And he has must be nice that you can look more than two weeks in advance. <laughs> Jana lives in New York, so it's a, a struggle. <laughs> oh, that's hard. It's hard. Yeah, that's hard. But yeah, that's just, yeah. So he's been so amazing as well. And he, you know, he has a very neutral relationship with food. Um, And so that's been really helpful too, just to have that person. Um, Yeah. Sounds like a great support. Yeah. Overall. Very good. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode. Thank Where can you. people find your book? Yep. So it's on Amazon. Um, if you just type it right in on Amazon, it's there. You can also go to my website, um, mm-hmm. which is www.sarahellng.com. And then you can go to store and you can find it there as it'll just, it's a link to Amazon. So it'll just bring you right to Amazon. So either way. Um, and yeah, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And awesome. what's your Instagram handle? It's at Sarah um, underscore LNG. Perfect. And this Facebook is the same thing. Wonderful. Yeah. And as always, we'll post it in the little description so you can find Sarah and her book. Yay. Gianna, where so can much. they find you? Yeah, of oh, course. You can find me at Gianna Bartolini on Instagram and Love nowhere that. else. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I, mean, I don't think you want to look at my website. It's like my resume. Yeah. <laughs> And you can follow us at Cyril from the Box or send us an email like Sarah did at Cyril from the Box at gmail.com. Um, yeah, just thank you again for joining us. It was great having you on. Um, and I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>